0: Well, that music should be your clue that we're about to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. We would note to start that although they didn't phrase it this way, we at Radio Parallax would call it a good week last week for the Trump style of promotion with the news that a Miami bar withdrew its offer of free shots for every goal scored by the U.S. Women's World Cup soccer team during the team's 13 to nothing thrashing of Thailand. Explained to bar spokesman, our free shots promotion is not meant to be taken literally. Yes, we would counsel you, dear listener, if you're going to go into a bar that's offering a free shots promotion, please ask if that's just a figurative promotion. I know that the U.S. soccer team has retained a lawyer to try and get them paid the same amount as the men's, even though it seems pretty clear that, you know, in sports, it's the revenue you generate that produces the amount you can pay to the athletes. And as far as we can tell, the mania of the women's World Cup soccer competition does not quite match up to that of the men's. One of the players in the team did speak out last week to say that she wasn't going to go to the effing White House, to which we at Parallax would like to point out that, you know, there's that recipe for rabbit stew that starts out, first, catch your rabbit, because, you know, to get invited to the White House, you, you first generally have to win. Now, I, I know they're heavily favored, but, you know, that's why we watch sports, isn't it? Because any, on any given day, anything can happen. Moving right along, it was a bad week last week for blaming your wife after U.S. Representative Duncan Hunter's spouse, Margaret, changed her plea and admitted that she and her husband illegally used more than $200,000 in campaign funds as their personal bank account. Margaret Hunter will now testify against her husband, who last year said, quote, she handled my finances, unquote. And it was an ugly week last week for getting your dying wish, at least in our opinion, with the news that an Englishman (laughs) before he passed stated that he wanted to go to his eternal reward alongside a bacon double cheeseburger. Leonard Durkin, 71, was evidently a huge Burger King fan, although I'm quite certain if he ate them in the UK, he was at an establishment called Hungry Jack's (laughs) because the corporate chain decided that Calling it Burger King in countries that actually had a monarch could be disrespectful. But evidently, Mr. Durkin told his kin he wanted to be buried with his usual order. So after he died of heart failure, possibly due to high cholesterol levels, the hearse carrying his corpse stopped at a Burger King drive through in Leeds, and a double bacon cheeseburger was then placed atop his coffin where it remained for the cremation. Said son Peter, Dad had a brilliant sense of humor. He'll be having a good laugh about this from up there. Or perhaps from down there or wherever. And we'd have to note it was probably both a bad and ugly week last week for the use of GPS with the news that another British man, in this case a man named Luigi Rimonti of Newcastle, but presumably of Italian origin, set out on a pilgrimage to Rome. But ended up in the tiny German village of Rom, spelled R-O-M, because he blindly followed his vehicle's GPS. Now, Mr. Rimati had evidently made this journey many times, but this time, he decided to rely on his GPS. After he arrived in Rom, which is about a 1,000 miles from Rome, he was surprised by the absence of familiar landmarks and apparently got out of his car on a hill to look around. Unfortunately, Mr. Ramonti forgot to engage the parking brake. The vehicle backslid and knocked down both the ROM sign and Ramonti. He was reportedly disappointed, but fortunately not badly injured. And finally, what would have to be considered a good week for computer programming, but bad week for human relations, there's this. A Chinese computer programmer created a chatbot that sent realistic responses to his girlfriend's daily barrages of 300 text messages. Yes, apparently Li shang said he developed the program because he feared hurting his girlfriend's feelings by ignoring her while he was at work. Reportedly, the girlfriend became suspicious when the responses to her text came back nearly instantly. Why are you responding so fast? she asked but here's the part I like. After revealing his ruse on social media, Lee was inundated with requests from other men for the source code to his bot. All right, I have a news item here that probably would not make the cut under normal circumstances, except as it turns out, I happen to know the individual named in it from unfortunate personal experience. In Wisconsin, A judge ruled last week that the authors of a conspiracist manual titled Nobody Died at Sandy Hook defamed the author of a six-year-old who was killed in the 2012 Connecticut massacre. The judge ruled that James Fetzer, who writes from Wisconsin, and Mike Palachek claimed the shooting that killed 20 first graders and six educators was a drill and the death certificates for Lenny Posner's son Noah was faked. Posner is involved in several of nine cases brought by families of Sandy Hook victims who faced relentless harassment. I received an email last week from a colleague of mine who was quoting a new article also being promoted by James Fetzer, the point of which was that when he was a freshman at Harvard, the CIA got to Mark Zuckerberg and has in essence been the power behind the throne all along. My response to this note was that, well, that's a very interesting suggestion and very provocative. But the fact that it comes from James Fetzer is somewhat problematic. When his name came up in a phone conversation last year, I said to the person, you know, if James Fetzer told me that the sun rose in the east, I would check the almanac. Anyway, on a personal level, I am glad that a Wisconsin judge has slapped down this... Goofball. We're great advocates for travel on this program, and suggest, dear listener, that if you haven't gotten out and stretched your legs and visited some places you don't normally visit, well, you should. Travel is inherently broadening. Travel writer Rick Steves calls it a political act, which it can be. In a future installment of this program, we hope to bring on uh, a travel agent to discuss over tourism. Writing on CNN.com, Kara Fox notes, we should consider the plight of Venice. In 2017, 36 million tourists flooded the iconic canal-filled city from April to October. Well, there's 365 days in a year, um, and if you're only counting half the year, well, that's 200,000 tourists a day. Well, CNN.com quotes 465,000 as the number of day trippers that are visiting there because, well, 32,000 cruise ships disembark daily there also. The residents must suffer the indignity of Americans asking, what time does the city close? As if it were Disney World. Venetian officials have brought in turnstiles to restrict the movements of visitors. They now plan to charge day trippers an $11 entrance fee. Bloomberg.com notes that overtourism isn't just a complaint, it can be quantified with data. In 2018, global tourist arrivals reached 1.4 billion, nearly tripling from 1995. The European Parliament now classifies 105 places as suffering from overtourism. There are plenty of reasons the cruise industry, Airbnb, a rising middle class, and of course, the main cause the incredible ease and low cost of air travel. The New York Times in the person of Jason Horowitz did suggest some solutions, noting that destinations like Venice and Amsterdam now look more like mosh pits in the summer. Overlooked neighbors like, say, Treviso, Italy provided a proverbial oasis next door. Sounds like a good plan to me. Instead of going to Barcelona, Amsterdam, Prague, Dubrovnik, etc., think about going to a less traveled location. Barcelona, by the way, which had 1.7 million tourists in 1990, now gets, at least as of last year, 32 million into the city, whose population is only 1.6 million. 20 tourists for every citizen. Barcelona residents are now actually staging protests against rampant tourism and what it's doing to local beaches, landscapes, and rental prices. They particularly are not happy with what Airbnb has done and how, at night, At this point, uh, certain districts become just flooded with inebriated louts, being the bad tourist. Anyway, we need to have a conversation about that. By the way, my favorite travel agent, who hopefully will join us in the weeks to come, is backing up my assertion that I have, at this point, been to 100 countries. He backs me in the face of detractors who have claimed that I cannot claim the USSR as a country if I've been to Russia. My answer is that I went to the USSR when it was a country and I've been to Russia now that it's a country and they're not the same. It would seem that during a break taken this summer, I will have to go to another country just to shut those people up. I'm not gonna shut up. If you went to East Germany and West Germany, you wouldn't count East Germany? Nine. Well, in almost every area of life, there's the lumpers and the splitters, aren't there? Are you still counting the U.S. as a country? Of course. I first visited it a long time ago. You were born here. You didn't visit. Well, when I popped out of the womb, I was in a location, making it my first visit to it. The womb is not a country that you're coming from. <laughs> well, on that on that we can agree. But no, I'm not going to visit two countries to placate you, Mr. McMillan. But I'm not shutting up. And speaking of crowded cities where people are protesting, it turns out over in Hong Kong, their battled chief executive, Carrie Lam, gave up temporarily on this extradition law, which the government of the People's Republic of China, which has now absorbed Hong Kong as a theoretically special zone, wants to have in place a case it wants to spirit away citizens to try them by the ruling communist party. Although Ms. Lam did offer what she called a most sincere apology to Hong Kongers who she acknowledged had expressed their concerns about the proposed law in a peaceful and rational manner during the two large protests, the next day the government delayed the passage of a controversial bill that would punish people for deliberately insulting China's national anthem. This does make me wonder. Has anybody heard the Chinese national anthem and and should it be insulted? We'll have to do some research. At any rate, one thing is clear, they've only delayed the implementation of this law, meaning they have every intention of putting it in place later, after things die down. Now, we should remind you that although China has quite a few capitalistic ways, in fact, they're showing capitalists how to be capitalists, they're still run by the Chinese Communist Party, under the leadership of Xi Jinping, who has developed himself quite a cult of personality. But I gotta say, I was quite chilled to get a little piece of feedback from someone who heard that segment on last week's show talking about protests in China. The person in question had formerly lived in Hong Kong and noted rather blandly that back in the day when she lived there, she noted that a couple of their servants, a couple of their servants, had sons who went off to check out a protest taking place in the city. And in this case... There was no issue of them being, you know, taken into the PRC for trial. They just disappeared. Anyway, I found that pretty disturbing. And prompts me to pull out an obituary that we didn't get to last March. This is worth a bit of a go. It comes from The Economist. And although The Economist obituaries are notoriously long-winded, I'm just going to read parts of it. starts out by knowing that Li Rui, secretary to Chairman Mao and an unspoken advocate of freedom in China, had died on February 16th at the age of 101. The piece notes that the summons was one Li Rui could not ignore, nor did he want to. When Mao Zedong sent a plane to fetch him to their first private meeting in 1958, he was 44 and rising fast. His position as deputy head of the Ministry of Water Resources made him the youngest vice minister in the still young Chinese Republic. Even better, he was the first director of Joint Factory 718, an electronics venture with East Germany that employed 10,000 workers. Note to the magazine, all the same doubts niggled. His last effort to join Mao had turned sour. After his hard, keen trek on foot at the end of the 1930s from his home province to Yanan, Mao's rebel stronghold, he had started writing editorials in the revolutionary newspaper Liberation. But these were so spikily revealing about both sides, Rui meant sharp, and he lived up to that, that he was thrown in prison as a spy needing rectification. His mother had told him, tearfully as he left home, the communists are good, but you might get killed. Now, referring to the meeting in 1958, Mao was ruler, and he was being called to discuss the Three Gorges Dam, a giant power project proposed for the Yangtze River. He and Mao did not agree about it. As a trained engineer, he fiercely opposed it, whereas Mao, in a poem, had already imagined himself swimming in its shadow, admiring its walls of stone, the smooth lake rising. Oddly, though, Mao liked the way he argued, seemed to like him, too, despite as a peasant loathing intellectuals, and asked him to be his secretary for industrial affairs. It barely lasted a year. Mao brooked no dissent, insisting upon controlling everybody's minds, He often claimed to be a terrifying blend of Marx and the first Qin Emperor, a brutal, unifying warlord, a brutal, unifying warlord of ancient times. Since his new secretary was a straight-talking sort, he was soon purged for daring to criticize openly the Great Leap Forward, the economic enormity which led China into savage famine. After that, he was in jail and in exile in northern mountains for the best part of 20 years, but that brief closeness to the chain-smoking great helmsman gave him insights that seared him. It also gave him enough standing in the party, when times were calmer, to urge other leaders continually to leave Maoist methods alone. For as long as the party kept flirting with autocracy, where government leader and ideology made one unchecked force, China would never reform or truly advance. Eventually, he wrote five books on Mao from birth to death, turning himself into a valued historian of those years. The point of history, he thought, was to learn from it and face up to it, and the party would not. Each leader, for more open-minded Deng Xiaoping honors was battered with his opinions and demands. Sometimes they took the form of open letters, sometimes interjections at Communist Party congresses he spoke out even against Tiananmen, that unmentionable massacre, stating simply but emphatically that the students were right and the leadership was wrong. As the veteran liberal member, quote unquote, he was usually met with silence, sometimes humored and ignored. He harassed Xi Jinping over dinner when the future leader was just party secretary in Xinjiang, a poorly educated hack, in his view, unlike his admirable father. He was horrified to see how autocratic the man became once in power. Li Rui's political wish list was not long. First, free speech, the party had to listen to the people. Second, freedom to publish. He'd been a proper investigative journalist as well as a trenchant writer. But his Mao books were banned on the mainland, and the journal Yahuang Chung Kui, which which he strongly backed in its unofficial reappraisals of Chinese history, had been made bland and the editor sacked. Top of the list, he sought constitutional and democratic governance with the party reframed as a socialist party in the West European style. In his last days, he still pondered the question of what could be done with China's Communist Party. His last days were spent in a first-rate hospital reserved for party officials. He had never left the party or even toyed with that idea. He joined it secretly at age 20. In 1937, as a student, he'd been jailed by the Kuomintang for eagerly thrusting Marxist textbooks into people's hands. Mao had expelled him, and the name of the party destroyed his first marriage and almost killed him. But that groupthink party of red books and red scarves was not the one he had raced to as a patriotic young rebel. When he was readmitted under Deng in the 1980s, he hoped for a party of brotherhood and social justice, but of freedom too. When his funeral took place, everything was as the party wanted. No media were allowed. Xi Jinping was rid of his most vexing thorn. He sent a nice wreath of flowers. Now, we're certainly not tech experts on this program, although we like to complain about what we think of as bad tech. Since we're talking about China, let's talk about Huawei. The Economist noted in April that Huawei's ascent, like that of China, has caused a good deal of worry elsewhere in the world. Three decades on, the firm is still in the telecoms equipment business. It started back in 1987, along with Nokia, a Finnish firm, and Ericsson, a Swedish one. Huawei's become one of the world's biggest suppliers of the high tech kit used to build mobile phone networks around the world. Of the three, Huawei's been the most active in setting the technical standards for fifth generation 5G networks. These promise big increases in speed and capacity that will improve some existing technologies, such as connected cars, and make possible new ones, including the sensor networks that will supposedly enable smart cities. Huawei and China, therefore, sit at the heart of technologies which governments worldwide have come to regard as a critical piece of future national infrastructure. The magazine notes, That is the context in which to see a decision by Britain, leaked to the press back on April 24th, to grant Huawei a limited role in building its 5G networks. It was taken in the teeth of a determined American campaign to persuade its allies to freeze the company out. Mike Pence and others have warned publicly that Huawei's gear could contain backdoors, malicious code designed to let Chinese spies snoop on communications or even bring down networks altogether. Mike Pompeo, our Secretary of State, has threatened to withhold intelligence cooperation from anyone who uses the firm's gear in, quote, critical, unquote, networks. Australia, like Britain, one of America's allies in the Five Eyes electric spying pact, has banned the firm explicitly. New Zealand, another member, has rebuffed a request from a local firm to use Huawei's kit. Japan, which is not in the club, but is closely allied to America, has tightened its rules. Although we're not particularly well-disposed toward the pronouncements of Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo, we have to note that The Economist says that America's stance may seem sensible given China's history of electronic espionage. The country is a prodigious hacker. It has purloined everything from the plans for the F-35 advanced jet finder to a database of millions of American civil servants. It has been accused of hacking India's Ministry of Defense. Britain and America say it has conducted a vast, unrelenting campaign targeting dozens of Western companies and government agencies. Last year, CrowdStrike, a cybersecurity firm, put China ahead of Russia as their most prolific sponsor of cyber attacks against the West. Last February, Nick Reed, the boss of Vodafone, one of the world's biggest telecom firms, challenged Americans to provide concrete evidence of foul play. He warned that shutting out Huawei would be very, very expensive and could delay the deployment of 5G networks by years. Mr. McMillan. Anyway, for its part, Huawei is flatly and repeatedly denied that it inserts backdoors. The magazine notes that backdoors may be bad for business, but they are not unknown. Leaks from Edward Snowden, the former worker at the NSA, seem to confirm suspicions that it had tried to put a backdoor into a cryptographic standard proposed in 2006, which could have given America's spies the ability to read communications that made use of it. Juniper, an American maker of network routers, announced in 2015 it had found unauthorized code in its products that could have led to communications being monitored. Suspicion once again fell on the NSA. Some have sounded off in this controversy. A lot of people have mouthed off about this controversy about Huawei. The magazine quotes a John Crowcroft, described as a computer scientist at the University of Cambridge, asking, why bother going to all the trouble of putting in a backdoor when you can just look for accidental vulnerabilities like everybody else? They note that Russia's prowess in cyberattacks demonstrates that point. It has no big hardware firms to lean on to provide back doors. That has not stopped its hackers from attacking Ukraine's power grid or stealing emails from American politicians. Hmm gee the name hillary clinton seems to come to mind on this discussion russia if you're listening well china's certainly been enthusiastic about using high tech to monitor citizens its own and others their book review in the march 16th edition of new scientist about the book the great firewall of china how to build and control an alternative version of the internet by james griffiths there's quite a few nuggets of interest I suppose I should actually read the book instead of the book review, but oh, so little time, so much to do. The book does, quote, John Perry Barlow, co-founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation Internet Rights Group, who in 1996 famously wrote A Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace. The magazine and the book notes that in 1996, you could credibly claim that the Internet should remain free from governmental or corporate influence. Fast forward to today, of course, And an internet without government surveillance and corporate dominance seems impossible. The internet is no longer a libertarian utopia, if it ever was. The choice is no longer between regulation or freedom, just between who controls it. It notes that calls for tech giants to do a better job policing their domains leave us asking ourselves if we are happier with companies to be the new arbiters of, of our morality rather than governments. Author Griffiths is good at calling out the hypocrisy of tech companies, including Google and Twitter, that espouse one ideology in Silicon Valley and another when talking to oppressive regimes. No company has been more shameless in its attempts to woo Beijing than Facebook, he writes. Mark Zuckerberg has posed for photos running in the Beijing smog, given employees copies of Xi Jinping's The Governance of China, and even reportedly asked Xi to name his first child, which she declined. And according to New York Times, Facebook has developed a tool that lets it hide posts from people's feeds in in specific countries, apparently with the aim of breaking into China. I'd like to note in closing that last week I made a gift of an extra copy I had of Panati's Parade of Fads, Follies, and Manias, which is a pretty entertaining read. And in the chapter titled The Schizophrenic Sixties, I came across a little section devoted to dance crazes. This led to a pretty entertaining look on YouTube of some videos showing people demonstrating all of these various moves. I never thought of the 60s as the era where the solo dance craze began, but, well, according to the book, back in 1959, when groups of black teens dreamed up torso twisting steps to a record, The Twist, by Detroit group of Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, well, it started something. It would take another year for an ex-chicken plucker named Ernest Evans to re-record the hit under the name Chubby Checker and for the song to debut on American Bandstand where it was introduced to the white audience through regulars Justine and Bob and Kenny and Arlene. Twisting time arrived. Chubby Checker himself explained the dance revolution inspired by the twist saying, Before the twist came, everybody danced together. I'm the guy that started people dancing apart. I taught the world how to dance as they knew it today. We're running out of time, so we'll have to refer you to videos to check out the Mashed Potato, the Swim, the Watusi, the Monkey, the Shaggy Dog, the frug, and the Freddy. If you are of a certain age, you will never forget the Freddy. Noted Panetti's, as a dance craze, its popularity was more fleeting than most. The final dance craze we must mention before closing, however, is The Jerk, because it allows us to play the song by the Capitals to which this dance craze was danced. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program, like all of them, was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, the king of the cool jerk. We'll see you next week.